Good morning, church. You know, you all don't get the, 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 uh, the joy of being on this side of listening to you all sing. It's, uh, isn't that cool? You guys, man, a church that sings is a, is a wonderful thing. So I'm Mike, and I'm one of the pastors on staff here, and I get to bring the word this morning. Happy Thanksgiving weekend to you all. Um, lots to be thankful for. Uh, you know, Mitch uh, last week talked a lot about gratitude, and this week I'm going to talk a little bit about the fruit of a grateful heart. And, uh, but before I get into that, I want to do a little history, a little history lesson for those of you that enjoy history. Uh, last week, uh, Mitch, kind of in an off, I think it was like a throwaway comment about the year 2020, said, well, we don't talk about 2020 anymore, right? The, uh, so I'm going to talk, I'm not going to talk to you about that. I'm going to talk to you about a different plague. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> it was much, much older. And uh, this is a, a, a plague that happened between 250 and 270 AD. So imagine that, 20 years of plague. Um, and this plague decimated the Roman Empire during that, that time. In fact, it was called the Plague of Cyprian. Um, and at the time, uh, there, at the height of the plague, about 5,000 people a day were dying just in Rome. And so if you imagine, cities weren't as big then as they are now. So if you imagine 5,000 people a day is staggering. And the thing started in, the, in a North African city called Alexandria. And the bishop of Alexandria at the time, a guy named Dionysius, uh, he described in a letter um, the behavior of the church in the midst of the plague. And he said that while others fled the city in the hopes of escaping, they went out to the countryside because it seemed like the, the plague was worse in the, in the populated areas, while most of the people were escaping and, and leaving to escape the disease and the death, the Christians were staying behind to serve those who were sick and dying, and many of them did so at the cost of their own lives. Now, I'm not going to get into, as in my study, I kind of looked at sort of what were the symptoms of this plague, and it's gross, so I'm not going to go there today. We're not going to talk about that. Uh, if you're really interested, uh, you have the morbid curiosity, please go look it up. But <clears throat> the letter that kind of describes this sacrificial neighborly love and compassion by the Christians in the city uh, can be found in Eusebius' record of early church history. It was one of the earliest uh, historical you know, narratives about the Christian church. And uh, keep in mind, these Christians were staying behind to help neighbors who were mostly not Christian neighbors. These were pagans, people that didn't agree with or oftentimes even like their Christian neighbors, and that's who they were staying behind to care for. So why on earth would they do this? Right? What, what, what would compel these Alexandrian Christians to walk into uh, what had to seem like certain death for many of them, for neighbors who would not most likely do the same thing for them? So the, these, what I believe is that these early Christian brothers and sisters were imitating someone that they loved, that they'd seen this done before, but on their behalf. And they, were, they, they had been saved from a different kind of plague. They had been saved from an eternal plague, a, a plague of sin and death and separation from God by a Savior, Jesus, who had laid down his life for them in their place, even while they were still his enemies. And so they were compelled by love. They were compelled by gratitude. They were compelled by faith and a transformed heart and a transformed mind. 
So if you don't consider yourself, I would say this, if you're here because someone invited you or it's Thanksgiving weekend and you wouldn't consider yourself necessarily a follower of Jesus, yet I would say pay special attention to this because here's the thing. Christians believe what, uh, what Paul says in the book of Romans, chapter 10, verse 9, he said that if you confess or you proclaim with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be saved. So saved from what? Saved from a plague. Saved from a plague that all of us face. It's the plague of confusion, of emptiness, of self-centered thinking, of hopelessness, and it's that plague that pervades our world even today. It's a pandemic. And we live in it because of our sinful human nature. So when we're saved from that plague, we're saved from eternal separation from God. And God promises forgiveness and freedom from that selfish nature when we put our trust in Jesus. And Jesus tells us that he came to give us life and to give us life the way that it was meant to be lived. In, in the Gospel of John, he says, life in abundance, meaning life that is not only eternal in its, in its length, but is eternal in its quality. Life the way that it was meant to be lived, full of purpose. And so we love, and the Alexandrian Christians loved, because Christ first loved us and gave himself up for us. Right? That's the gospel, that's the good news that saves. And the Alexandrian Christians understood this and they laid down their lives because they were compelled by that same love that Jesus had, had shown them by facing death for them. And so for my fellow Jesus followers here, I would say we need to ask ourselves, myself included, we need to ask ourselves the question, do we have that depth of love and compassion? Do we, do I live in the reality of the gospel every day? single day, day by day? Am I compelled by the love of Christ in the way that I live? And so that's what I want us to explore today. And I'm going to call it the fruit of a, the fruit of a thankful heart. And where did these Alexandrian Christians learn this behavior? And, and like I said, they learned it from their Savior. They learned it from Jesus. And Jesus in Luke 6.40 says, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. So what was it? What was the action or the teaching of the master, Jesus, that they were, uh, that they were imitating? What, uh, what were they reaching back to? And so what I want us to see is that if we discover the answer to that question, it's going to lead us to the essence of who Jesus is. It's going to lead us to the essence of his mission and his vision for his people. Now, I have a couple of possible you know, candidates for what they were thinking back to. One, it seems kind of obvious, would be Matthew 28, what we call the Great Commission, very familiar. He says to his apostles, you know, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you. That seems like a good candidate, right? That's inspired generations of Christians to go into the world and, and be um, disciple makers, to go on mission, it reinforces the truth that our God is a missionary God. He is a God who goes. He's not passive. He's very active. He pursues. He pursues sinners to save them. So I think that is a piece of the puzzle, but I don't think it's really what they were thinking of when they made that decision to stay behind in their city and care for people. So I think, well, maybe, maybe it could have been Jesus' words to his disciples at his ascension, right? Acts 1.8. Uh, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the utter ends of the earth, okay? That seems like a reasonable candidate. It's, it's talking about sort of the concentric circle idea of being a witness and witnessing 
for Jesus, starting in the place that's closest to home and working your way out from there. I think that's probably something that the Alexandrian Christians may have had in mind, right? They were witnessing for Christ close to home with their neighbors. But I think there was something even more explicit than that that Jesus taught that they probably were reaching back to that I think explains this sort of very, very peculiar behavior. And when I say peculiar behavior, I mean in, in all of my searching, and maybe if, if I have a historian here who can correct me, I cannot find a single instance of, in history of behavior like these Christians prior to the advent of the Messiah, Jesus. I don't have any examples of pagan cultures doing this kind of sacrificial love and compassion for people who were their enemies. Can't find it. So this is a very, very peculiar behavior. And I think, I think that the teaching that the Alexandrian Christians were, were thinking about is something that we can find in two places. Number one, Mark chapter 12, verses 30 and 31, which should be very familiar, and I'll quote it in a second here, but reinforced with a parable in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37, which we all know as the parable of the Good Samaritan. Very familiar account. Jesus is teaching his disciples when an expert in the law, the expert in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, stands up and he asks Jesus, he wants to test Jesus with a question. And he says, what must I do to inherit uh, eternal life? And Jesus turns the question as he usually does. He answers questions with questions. I love that. He turns it back on this man and he says, well, you tell me, what does it say? What does the law of Moses tell you? And the man quotes basically the same thing that Jesus said in Mark chapter 12, verses 30 and 31. He said, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus, <clears throat> Jesus first commends him. He says, yes, that's true. You got it. And then the man, wanting to justify himself, the man wanting to justify himself in his life, asks the follow-on question, yeah, but who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? And I think that he was looking for a loophole. I think he was looking for a way to get out from under this. Because if I can limit who qualifies as my neighbor, then I can excuse my indifference or even hatred for other groups of people because they're not my neighbor. And so Jesus then tells the story of the Good Samaritan as an illustration. And so if you're not familiar with the story, I'm just going to summarize it here. But basically, Jesus said there was a Jewish man who was on a journey, and the Jewish man is ambushed by some bandits. He's beaten up and robbed and left for dead on the side of the road. And then uh, a priest comes by, another, another person of his religion, another Jewish man, a priest, walks by, sees him laying there, and decides not to do anything and passes by and continues on his way. And then after that, a Levite, or so you imagine like a church staff member, right, comes by, sees him there, and does the same thing, passes him by. And then the third person to come by is the Samaritan, right? And we all know, or if you don't, we should know that Samaritans, Jews and Samaritans, they didn't mix very well. Uh, the Jews thought of them as half-breeds. They were not, you know, that relationship was not good. And so this is the least likely candidate for the person who's going to do something kind in this situation. And he comes by and he sees the man and he has, the, the word says, he has compassion. He has compassion. And so that compassion is love, that, the compassion is love that moves you to action. And so he goes over and he binds the man's wounds and he puts, you know, band-aids on him and some ointment and that kind of thing, puts him on his own animal, takes him to a place where the man can be cared for better, uh, lets the person know, hey, care for him, 
put it on my tab. If there's anything that you know, goes over this, when I get back, I'll, take, I'll, I'll settle accounts with you, but just take care of this man. And then Jesus asks a question. He asks the question, which one of these, which one of these was neighbor to this man? Now, let me back up here for a second. Let me back up here for a second. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said these words. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, what Jesus was doing there was he was not saying that the Old Testament taught this. What he was doing was addressing a false doctrine that was common in that day, that you loved your, en- you loved your, your neighbor, but you hated your enemy. That was being taught, and Jesus was correcting it. He was saying, no, that's not the case at all. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Pray for those who persecute you. And in doing that, Jesus was correcting that man's wrong thinking about neighboring. Okay? In the, in the uh, <clears throat> pardon me, I'm sure... Right? Let's take this example. If you only consider your Christian, your fellow Christians, your fellow Jesus followers as your neighbors, which was the common view of the Jewish people in his time, right, you might almost feel justified in this command, right? Well, I love all these people pretty well. I feel like I, I love my neighbors, so I'm doing pretty good. I'm doing pretty good. Well, that's what this teacher of the law was trying to do. He was trying to exclude a group of people from being his neighbor so that he could justify himself. So who is my neighbor? Some people will teach that what Jesus was trying to, the point he was trying to make here was that everyone is my neighbor, right? Is that what he was teaching? The whole world is my neighbor? Was that the point? I I don't think that was the point. Let me explain why. Let me explain why. And I learned this in my business career, so I'll kind of give you an example. If the whole world is my neighbor, then no one is my neighbor. So when I worked in business, um, I managed a call center at one point in my career. And one of our senior execs decided that in order to reduce call times, we were going to, instead of having the phones ring on specific people's lines, they were going to ring on everybody's line. It was going to be a big party line. And that that way, everyone would hear the phone ringing, and then the phone would get picked up faster. Now, you might imagine human nature, right? That's not what happened at all. That's not how it played out. Everyone instead assumed that somebody else, and assumed and hoped that somebody else would pick it up. And what ended up happening was all of the people in that office became really skilled at looking busy. <laughs> looking really busy. In fact, I would go around and I could tell if they were actually on the phone because there would be a light, but they would have the phone on their shoulder looking like they were on the phone, and some of them even pretending to talk to somebody, an imaginary person. Right? So it did not have the effect that we were going for at all. If everyone is my neighbor, then no one is my neighbor because it just becomes too overwhelming. It's too big. And then we assume, well, somebody else is going to do it. Someone else is going to take care of it. On the other hand, if we limit our neighbor, either geographically or ethnically or uh, religiously or by any other means, then it becomes an excuse for my indifference towards anybody outside of that group. And so what Jesus does here is he short-circuits both of those arguments by turning the tables on that question with a question of his own. And and I'll repeat it because I said it earlier. This is in Luke chapter 10, verses 36. Which of these three do you think 
was neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers. And of course, now the expert in law is trapped, and so he's got to answer the question. And he says, the one who had mercy on him. Notice, Jesus doesn't ask if the wounded man was a neighbor to any of the three. Jesus, in this one parable, turns the word neighbor from a noun to a verb. He turns it back on the heart of the man asking the question, and I think by, down the, uh, by recording this parable for us, it turns the question back on our, own, on our own hearts. He eliminates the loopholes with that one little question. And once the man answered, Jesus' response to him was what? Go and do likewise. That's his closing statement. So where are we to be neighbors is a better question than who is my neighbor. Where and how should we be neighbors? And you could say that it's more than your geographical location, and that would be true, but you can't say that it's less than the person who lives next door to you. You can say that it's your brother and sister in the Lord, which is true, but you can't say that it stops there because Jesus' parable, his teaching, doesn't let us stop there. So what does it mean? What is he saying? If we go back to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, and we look at that progression, right, Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, we would have to con- conclude, right, that our neighboring has to include those who live on our block, those who uh, go to the gym with us, those who live in our neighborhood, those who go to the grocery store with us or wherever else in daily life. Our Jerusalem, our Judea, and our Samaria Right? In all of those interactions, Jesus is asking, are you being neighbor, am I being neighbor to these people in my sphere? So in addition to identifying the where we are to be neighbors, Jesus expands on that old command to give us the how. I'm going to talk about two different ways of neighboring here really quickly. One of them I would call passive neighboring, passing or, or do no harm neighboring. Right? This is a good place to start, and it's biblical. In Romans chapter 13, verses 9 and 10, it says, The commandments, such as, do not commit adultery, do not commit murder, do not steal, do not covet, and any other commandments, are summed up in this one decree, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to its neighborhood, or neighborhood, or its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. So this is the kind of neighboring that thinks about the, 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 the effects of its actions on others and then changes course. If there's going to be a negative effect on someone else by what I choose to do, I'm going to change course. This is do-no-harm neighboring, and it's biblical. But you can't stop there. It's not enough to just say, well, I'm, I'm a neighbor, I'm a good neighbor because I don't steal my neighbor's wife or their dog, or, <laughs> right? And I haven't killed them. Those are all good things, a great place to start, but that's passive neighboring, and it's not the full picture. Because if you look in 1 John 3, verse 18, it says, Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue only, but in deed and in truth. See, this is compassionate love. It's the kind of love that the Samaritan showed towards the Jewish man on the road. It's love that acts, that moves you to act. And it can take all kinds of forms. It doesn't have to be something as dramatic as a person beat up on the side of the road. It could be something as simple as just being present in your neighborhood, making your resources available to your neighbors. I think of uh, people that I've known, 
old friend of mine in Byron who went out and bought himself a snowblower just so he could go out and, and blow snow for all of his neighbors and have opportunities to bless them. Uh, the, the, the ministry of hospitality, something that we've lost, unfortunately, a lot in our culture of opening up your home to people around you. You know, the ministry of giving and receiving, not just, not just giving things to people, not just giving of your resources, but also, you know, you'd be surprised how often if you go to your neighbor, the person in your, in your sphere, and you need something and you ask them kindly, hey, you know, could I have some advice? Could I borrow this? Could, right? How many times that blesses them by their ability to bless you and share with you and opens doors to gospel conversations. Being a peacemaker, small kindnesses, praying for people in your sphere. All of these are active neighboring. So we have passive and we have active neighboring. We know the command, love your neighbor, do them no harm, actively love them as well. So what? So what? God calls us always, the repeating theme in Scripture, God calls us to examine our ways. I've examined my ways and I've turned my feet. We're to look into God's word and measure ourselves by that and change direction as need be. And so the question that I want to ask myself when I read this account and when I think about being neighbor to someone else is, am I actively living in the direction of this command? I know I'm not going to do it purpose, perfectly, but am I actively living in the direction of it to the extent that the Lord wants me to be? Do I even want to be? Do I even have the desire to be like Jesus in this respect? Is his great love, is the gratitude that I have in my heart for his great love welling up to, in me to such a degree that it's, it's coming out as compassion for other people? Now, I have, when I think about that, when I ask myself those questions, a lot of excuses or obstacles come up in my head, right? And those tend to tamp down that spirit within me and, and, and make me be more passive in my neighboring. And I don't think we should allow our objections or our excuses or the obstacles that, that may be very real to get in our way and be justifications for inaction, so there could, there's a lot of different things that keep us from being neighbor to those around us, a lot. And I don't have time to go into all of them, but I do want to talk about one, and I think it's probably the biggest one. And if we can identify and overcome these obstacles by the power of God's grace, because it's the only way we do anything, I think we'll find that there's great joy and life in living as Christ lived. So the biggest one that I think of when I think of obstacles to being neighbor is my time, is my time. I'm, I'm, I have a schedule. I'm very busy, right? I, you know, there's the rat race. We talk about the rat race. I know down here we talk less about the rat race. Up north it's always the rat race, the rat race. And I have a question about the rat race, right? You all have heard of the Boston Marathon, right? How many of you have run in it? Congratulations. We have one. Okay, so clearly the, the, the understanding that there is a race, that such a race exists, does not necessitate that everybody participate in the race. So my point here is that there is a rat race, but one of the ways that we, uh, as, as followers of Jesus, one of the ways that we are obviously set apart by Christ is that we don't participate in the rat race. 
we choose to live differently. We choose to live differently. Well, then you might say, well, you know, I, this is not my ministry. I have other ministries. This is one I hear a lot in ministry circles, but you might be for you as well. Like, I have other priorities or I have other ministries, and that sounds kind of spiritual, sounds good, right? Like, yeah, yeah, well, I serve in some different areas, and this is what I do, and I lead a small group, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I can't change my whole lifestyle after all, right? Well, I would say there, there are certain commands that are for everyone, independent of their calling, independent of their gifting, independent of their personality type or anything else. If you're a follower of Jesus, the idea is, the meaning of that is that you are following or imitating Jesus. And Jesus was a very busy guy. But one of the things that we see over and over again in his ministry is that he stops what he's doing for people. You know, I think I was just reading in Matthew as he's walking along and he's getting ready actually to go and do the biggest thing in his ministry, which is be crucified. And a couple of blind men are harassing him, right? Son of David, son of David, have mercy on us. They're calling out to him and Jesus and, and the people around him are rebuking those guys saying, hey, he's really busy, Right? You can't bother him with this stuff. He's really busy. But Jesus stops. And we see that over and over again in his ministry. He stops. He heals. He consoles. He teaches. He feeds. He doesn't allow his busy schedule and his other ministry responsibilities to stop him from being neighbor. The Samaritan, in Jesus' story, sacrificed his to-do list. He was on a business trip. He wasn't on a mission trip. He gave of his time and his treasure to love with zero expectation of return from this man. He didn't know him. He couldn't talk to him. The guy was unconscious. And yet, he gave. He stopped and he had compassion. And I think that's what our Alexandrian brothers and sisters knew and were trying to actively live out and model. The Samaritan, like I said, wasn't on a mission trip. This was just part of who he was. And I think that's the message that we're to be neighbor to others in the mundane, in the day to day, as we walk along the way. So, how do we do it? And I'll close with that. How do we do it? Because it's great to give an exhortation. Go and be neighbor. Okay, how? The first thing we need to do is we need to cultivate compassionate love. And the best way you can cultivate compassionate love in your heart for another person is by praying for them. How many of you guys have ever been at a traffic light and looked around you at all the cars and thought, you know, every single person here has family like they're all going somewhere I don't know where they're going they've all been somewhere they all have a history I wonder what's going on. I wonder what drama is happening in their life have you ever done that am I the only crazy person here <laughs> come on somebody must have if you have never done it start start thinking about because you know what everybody has a backstory everybody has a backstory and if you knew their backstory, you would have compassion for them. There was a great movie called Wonder a few years. Anybody see the movie Wonder? That movie, it was brilliant. I don't know who made it. I can't remember. But it was brilliant because they put these characters in and you were just hating on these characters because they were so mean and they were so nasty. And you're like, oh, man, I hope they get it. And then just when you get really, really upset, they'd go and they'd flip the script and they'd tell you the backstory of that person. And your heart would break, and then you'd feel like, oh, I'm such a terrible person. I can't believe I judged them like that. And then all of a sudden, you find yourself loving that person. Okay, that's, that's real life. Everybody is the way they are because of what's happened to them in their life. 
the family that they came from, the experience they've had. Everyone has a backstory. You have one, so does everyone else. If you want to com- cultivate compassionate love for your neighbors, think about that. Pray for them. Pray for them. And then reflect on why in the world has God put you where he's put you. God does nothing by accident. He has put you in the neighborhood you're in, in the job you're in, with the family, with the friends, all for a purpose. Reflect on that. Think about how God has gifted you. How might my gifting be employed to be a compassionate neighbor to the people around me? Maybe you want to write it down. Because if we truly know Jesus, we're going to want to overcome this objection. We're going to want to get past it. We don't want to be owned by our obstacles. Don't wait for a plague. Right? Don't wait for someone to get beaten up and robbed or some tragedy to strike. I, I firmly believe the Alexandrian Christians were probably being neighbor to people before all this happened, and they just continued on. The fruit of a grateful heart is compassion. And compassion drives us to be neighbor to other people. And we do what we do out of gratitude, faith, and a transformed heart because of what Jesus has done for us. Don't forget, my, my, my Jesus-following friends here, don't forget that you and I were once the man who fell among robbers, was beaten and passed over until Jesus came to be neighbor to you and to me. You were the unbeliever that was suffering through the plague of confusion and emptiness and sin. We love because he first loved us. The love of Christ compels us to love as he did. We're to be neighbor to everyone we come in contact with, but it cannot be less than the folks who live right next door. You know, the, 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 the message has a great, I love this version of John chapter 1, verse 14 in the message, and it expresses it like this. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. The word, Jesus Christ, became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. We saw the glory with our own eyes. I've been convicted, I think, more and more lately that in this world where we look and things are, seem to be very divided and our moral compass seems to be completely broken, um, that as discouraging as that might sound, it's actually an amazing time to be alive. Because, guys, if our light, if the light of Jesus in us can't shine now in this darkness, then you need to get your bulbs checked, make sure, you're, make sure all the cables are plugged in, and ask yourself a question. This is one I ask myself. If I suddenly vanished from my neighborhood, if I suddenly vanished from my school, not, I'm not at school anymore, but if I was at school, if I suddenly vanished from my sphere of influence, would anybody notice? Would my compassion be missed? And if I don't know the answer to that, then I need to, I need to be in prayer. I need to be seeking the face of God for that. So where do I start? How do I start, right? I want to be, I want to be neighbor to people. Where do I start? Well, I'm going to give you one option here. Uh, on your way out this morning, under the tents out here, you're going to see uh, a bunch of different organizations represented. And what these are, are the local missions partners of Centerpoint. These are organizations, not all of them, but a lot of them are represented out there. These are organizations that we, um, that we partner with by 
you know, with our, with our giving. So your generosity helps to, uh, helps to move these ministries forward. And with our, our gifts and talents, right? We give of our time and our talent and our treasure. And so we have folks who volunteer with all these. There's volunteer opportunities. You can be neighbor, right? As a church, Centerpoint wants to be known as a compassionate church, a church of good neighbors. Amen? And so on your way out this morning, I encourage you, stop by, talk to the people that are manning the tables out there under the tent um, and see maybe there's a place for you to plug in with one of them and begin to exercise your neighboring muscles. Why don't we bow our heads and ask the Lord to bless us as we go from this place. Father in heaven, you are so good and you are so kind and you're so patient with us and we're thankful. Lord, I pray that you would help to give each of us a compassionate heart. Fill us with the compassion of Christ. A compassion that led him to seek and to save the lost, to give his life on a cross on our behalf, even while we were his enemies. Father, we know that you will take great joy in answering this prayer, and so we eagerly anticipate all that you will do in and through us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.